Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. Wild Precious Life is brought to you in part by Brain Lair Books, a black-owned, woman-owned children's bookstore located in South Bend, Indiana. At Brain Lair, we partner with local schools and universities to help build an inclusive, welcoming community. We specialize in juvenile and young adult literature written by and for black, indigenous, people of color, LGBTQIA+, and disabled communities— as well as adult nonfiction about ending white supremacy, promoting anti-racism, and becoming a social activist. We can help you find the books you need. Drop by or browse online at shop.brainlairbooks.com. And Wild Precious Life is proud to support the International Writers Collective, Creative Writing School, the Collective offers fiction and poetry workshops online and in the Netherlands and a vibrant international community to support you in your writing goals. Many students view their program as a cheaper and more flexible alternative to an MFA. Learn more and find a class at internationalwriterscollective.com. Do you even know what you don't know? Sometimes I feel so smart. My middle school daughter is studying algebra right now, and even though it's been decades and decades since my own first algebra teacher, Ms. Porter, taught me, I still know that y equals mx plus b, and that y sub 2 minus y sub 1 over x sub 2 minus x sub 1 equals slope. And last year, when my oldest daughter was assigned Pride and Prejudice in her AP Literature class, she and I could go round and round about whether or not Charlotte Lucas was an early feminist icon, or whether Mr. Bennett's lack of action on his daughter's behalf or Mrs. Bennett's over-meddling was the greater character flaw. I know books and movies and very basic math. <laughs> Sometimes I feel smart, but other times, not so much. For instance, until I read Angeline Booley's novels, I didn't even know what I didn't know about indigenous storytellers. My own father was a history teacher, but we never talked much about the damage done to Native communities by white people. My brother works at an art museum, but we have never talked about the return of sacred relics to Indian families. And I live in Cuyahoga County. And until I spoke with Angeline, I'd never even bothered to learn the derivation of this Native American word. I've grown up believing that Cuyahoga meant, quote, crooked river. It's actually more likely that white folks corrupted or misheard words from the Iroquois or Seneca languages. According to a 2014 book, the English Cayuga Cayuga English Dictionary, the name for my county is more likely from Gayahaga, 
which means on the chin, or Gayahoga, which means Elm River. I'm born and raised here in Northeastern Ohio, and I'm only now opening my eyes to the ways in which Indigenous people, their customs, traditions, and language are still being erased today. So what do we do when we start to know what we don't know? I can either bemoan these gaps in my own knowledge, or I can keep learning. And I appreciate the fact that authors like Angeline Booley are out there writing and teaching so that I can try to be a better informed and citizen. So let me tell you more about this excellent author, Angeline Booley, an enrolled member of the Sioux St. Marie tribe of Chippewa Indians, is a storyteller who writes about her Ojibwe community in Michigan's Upper Peninsula. She's a former director of the Office of Indian Education at the United States Department of Education. Angeline lives in southwest Michigan, but her home will always be on Sugar Island. Her debut novel, Firekeeper's Daughter, was an instant number one New York Times bestseller and is soon to be adapted at Netflix by President Barack Obama and Michelle Obama's production company, Higher Ground. Angeline's 2023 follow-up, Warrior Girl Unearthed, was also an instant New York Times bestseller and an Amazon Best Book of the Year. Angeline Booley, welcome to Wild Precious Life. It's a pleasure to be here. So I came to your books a little bit backwards. I met and interviewed Justin A. Reynolds here in Cleveland last summer, and I really admired the story you contributed to that collaborative novel, House Party. So then I went and found Firekeeper's Daughter, which was by you, and I didn't know you were the same you as in that book. And then, of course, I read Warrior Girl, Unearthed, in a couple of breathless sittings. I'm eager to talk to you about your Ojibwe characters. However, since not all of our listeners will have had the chance to read House Party or um, your two novels, I wonder, would you tell us some of your story? So I was a high school senior uh, way back in the 80s, and my a uh, good friend went to a, a different school nearby. She told me about a new boy in all of her classes. She thought uh, he was my type and that I might want to meet him, but uh, I didn't meet him. He, uh, it turned out, even though he was a beefy boy, he did not play football. So that was that was my type. Um, so I never met him, but uh, there was a drug bust at their school uh towards the end of their senior year, our senior year. And it turned out the new boy was an undercover police officer. And um, this was right before the original 21 Jump Street series with Johnny Depp. Oh, I remember that. Yes. I was just, you know, blown away by the idea of a young looking cop posing as a high school student. And so I, you know, have an overactive imagination. And I just thought, what if, what if I had met him and what if we liked each other? What if he needed my help? And that was like the origin story for my debut novel, Firekeeper's Daughter, which I didn't start writing until I was 44. And then, uh, I got published at 55. So a very long incubation period for that story. 
Uh, and then Warrior Girl, I wrote that in one year as opposed to the 10 years it took me to write Firekeeper's Daughter. Um, yeah, uh, Warrior Girl came about because my agent, my literary agent, said um, when your manuscript, when we take your manuscript on submission, uh, we're hoping for a multi-book deal. So what other ideas do you have? And I said, honestly, all I've got is this one story that's been with me since I was 18 years old. And um, so it got me thinking, like, do I just have the one story in me or do I have anything else? And uh, I was out for a walk. I was living in Washington, D.C. at the time. And all of a sudden, this character's voice popped into my head and she said, I stole everything they think I did and even stuff they don't know about yet. And I just thought, who is this girl? And I ran into the nearest business, which um, had a bar. And um, I said, I need a piece of paper and a pen and a Chardonnay. And I wrote like all afternoon, all Sunday afternoon, um, wrote the stream of consciousness of the 16-year-old girl sitting in a police station waiting for her parents to pick her up. And, and she's like, how did it come to this? And that's when I knew that my next story would be uh, Perry, one of the little twins from the first book. It would be 10 years later, and she gets caught up in this. I pitched it as indigenous Lara Croft, uh, where, you know, instead of raiding tombs, the main character raids uh museums and private collections to bring home our ancestral remains and sacred items that do not belong in museums and private collections. Those are great pitches. Those are great pitches. <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. I categorize our listeners and myself included as sort of, quote, well-intended. We read widely, or at least think we do. We vote progressively, or at least think we do. But when I was reading both of your novels, I confronted some real gaps in my own education and understanding. I have not read many novels with Native protagonists, especially not female ones. You and I are about the same age. Was that your experience growing up too? Absolutely, yes. And so, you know, the adage, write the book you wished you could have read as a teen, that I definitely did that with Firekeeper's Daughter and have continued to do. Yeah, it's just so important for young people, especially young people, to see themselves reflected in the pages of a book. I mean, so likely because of these gaps in my own reading, I realize there's all kinds of Indigenous traditions that I am utterly unfamiliar with. From your books, I'm learning about blanket parties and ring skirts <laughs> and how I should only say good things if I'm ever fortunate enough to be around a ceremonial fire. Um, but I thought about, like, sadly, my like my way into Native culture, into my adult years, would have been through problematic depictions in movies and, you know, tourist shop trinkets, which Perry Firekeeper Birch in Warrior Girl Unearthed talks about. You know, like, most people have seen Dreamcatchers and moccasin slippers and even the occasional cigar store Indian. And these kinds of items, I don't think I really, really understood the offensive stereotypes and appropriation until I heard Perry talk about them. 
for the uneducated, including up until very, very recently me. What's wrong with buying a plastic dream catcher at a tourist trough? <laughs> oh, gosh, it just commercializes a cultural teaching and turns it into this kitsch thing that um, really has no significance. It has no meaning. If it makes you feel better at night, please know this was not made <laughs> in the same way with the intentions of someone who actually knows the teaching and gifts someone a dream catcher with those good good intentions yeah and so perry firekeeper birch in warrior girl unearthed um she's a teenager right she's assigned to work at this tribal museum for a summer internship she is not excited about having to dust the artifacts or clean the windows but she has a fire lit beneath her when she learns about NAGPRA, the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act. I Again, this is back to my gaps in my education. This is a federal law passed in 1990. I've been an adult that whole time and knew very little about this. It was to return, to assist in the return of Native relics to their tribes of origin. Um, how much did you know about NAGPRA before you went into this book and what did you learn along the way that surprised you? I knew a moderate amount. Uh, I worked as the tribal education director for my tribe, and um, I got a promotion that involved also supervising our cultural division. And so we had a staff that worked on repatriation issues. And so by supervising them, I really got... Um, a crash course in NAGPRA and, you know, repatriating at all of the loopholes and the frustrations that our staff experienced um, going up against these museums and, you know, certain academics that just uh, believe it's their property and they feel such ownership over these ancestors' bones and these, you know, funerary items that were buried with people that, you know, no one gave permission for this. And so it's like you're displaying grave robbers, you know, uh, the product of grave robbers. So why is this okay? Um, I was, I, I think maybe the things I learned uh, through the research was just that whole era, how it, how it's another layer of colonization and, um, supremacy in that belief that these lesser civilizations are ripe for studying and aren't we academics just so um, doing, su providing such a good service to uh, display these items or care for these items. And it's like, that that's not where our ancestors wanted to be. Um, and, and so, yeah, I think just how the whole school of 
the study of anthropology and archaeology, um, how that is rooted in colonization and the whole manifest destiny and and how that translates to you know real life tribal communities wanting to get their ancestors back and having to jump through so many hoops and even then the way that the law was written um the law is simple it's the regulations that complicate everything and there has been a new set of regulations that just went into effect um hopefully they will give tribes more uh power in the equation because previously tribes could do everything right jump through every hoop and the museum or institution could still say we're still not going to give it back to you yeah it's an outrage yeah and i I really appreciated seeing it through Perry's eyes. Again, she's not a kid who wants to work in this museum over the summer. It was not her first choice. But the more she learns, just like the more I learned as a reader, the more um, gobsmacked she was. That, you know, museums were given five years to inventory their collections and then uh, post what they had so that tribes could go about um, gaining access to their ancestral artifacts and and to give them the proper burial or the proper homage. And I, I read in your author's note that uh, less than half of less than half of the ancestral remains had even been cataloged that 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 the museums are are steamrolling. And, and some of it makes sense. Yeah, we didn't have the money or we didn't have we needed more time. Like we've all worked at jobs where you needed more money and more time. But the the lack of transparency about what is kept in a basement vault or in your book, in a cereal box, in a spare bathroom, in some university um, closet, you know, that, that these are not just bones that we get to study, that these are, these are family members, these are elders um, who want to go home. I really was grateful for the way your books helped me re-examine, you know, histories I thought I knew. Right. And I made a point of every uh, description um, of ancestral remains uh, were based in fact. So there really was a university professor that had a cereal box full of teeth in their office, um, you know, all of these, the horrific things that Perry encounters, you know, a, a child's pair of moccasins, just um, like a whole family's set of moccasins. And you know that those were taken off of an actual family um, and then put on display like, oh, this native brave and his maiden and their um, papooses or, you know, it just, it's so ridiculous and but it's all true. And, and I just thought that was more horrifying than anything I could imagine. Um, I did the similar thing in Firekeeper's Daughter. There are two crimes that take place in the story. Uh, there is a rape and there is a, um, uh, an arrest for, uh, a teen is arrested for, basically being this like drug 
um, you know, kingpin. And I made a point of basing both of those characters on actual incidents that happened because I didn't want anyone to say, oh, that's just so beyond the plausible. That would never happen. And to be able to say, no, there actually was a tribal judge that, you know, uh, ruled in certain way in her, in her cases when it affected her family like this really happened, um, which was a major spoiler, by the way. Um, but for, <laughs> yeah, so for Warrior Girl, I felt the most effective storytelling would be telling the truth and having it viewed by Perry and her outrage. And she was the perfect narrator because, you know, she, she's reluctant. She doesn't want to be there, but then she's like, got this call to activism. It really, um, it just, uh, becomes this calling for her. And I see that with teens and, and young adults, um, just and that youthful passion that they have for a cause and knowing at this level that it's not right and they want to do something and they want to do something now and and so you know she was a great narrator too because she's like naturally funny and she says like everything that's on her mind and she's like cool in a way that I wish I could have been but I was much more like her twin sister Pauline who's very um uptight and uh performance driven, you know, just, a, she's a different cat altogether. So Perry's natural humor and lightness of spirit, that joie de vivre, it made her the perfect narrator because the topic of um, our ancestors' remains and sacred items being basically held captive, it can be so dark and depressing. And Perry's lightness was really integral. Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown. With three island beaches, Carolina, Curie and Wrightsville and a vibrant downtown, you get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at WilmingtonandBeachesVacation.com. communities that you portray in your books have real problems. They have drug and alcohol addiction and sexual assault, as you mentioned, uh, theft, that these are all issues depicted within the tribe. Did you ever feel any pressure to, you know, to only portray Ojibwe people in a, in a more positive light? I felt that would be doing a disservice because, you know, my community is like any other community. We have, you know, great people. And we have some, you know, people that lost their way a long time ago. And I felt like it wouldn't, it would be kind of playing into that noble, uh, you know, that noble stereotype, uh, the wise native, you know, person. And, and I think that perfect uh, protagonists are very boring. And so, I like to show like 
real people, real like flaws and everything and the goodness that we can still accomplish. And I feel like books written about my community from someone who's not a part of my community, they focus on all of the negative. And the answer isn't only focus on the positive, it's to show the balance and to get it right. Yeah, no, 100%. Um, absolutely. And to to that end, you also, in addition to um, things we've covered, you you also talk in both of your books about violence against Indigenous women. Um, women are in, abducted in both of your books, and this is really not fiction in our real world. Native women disappear in shocking numbers. The missing and murdered Indigenous women numbers are something like 5,000 missing women and only 100 or so are logged into federal databases. And while the idea of tribes having oversight, you know, tribal police get to be in charge of tribal lands, seems like a good thing. And definitely people taking care of their own. But it means there are also real gaps, dangerous gaps when it comes to, you know, state or federal crimes that take place either on Native soil or are the victims are Indigenous people. Um, can you shed any light on this problem? Why are Native women being abducted and why aren't we doing more to catch their abductors? Because uh, perpetrators that know there's very little chance of them facing consequences for abducting and harming Indigenous women, they turn into predators and they know our jurisdictional boundaries better than 90% of our tribal members. Um, they know if they take a woman, uh, you know, from the res, uh, she, that law enforcement, the chances of a crime being uh, followed through uh, prosecution is so abysmal. Like it just, yeah, it's, it's a lack of communication amongst law enforcement. It's, it's such a, um, it's a, it's a really complex situation. Um, Secretary of the Interior, Deb Holland, who is the first indigenous uh, woman to be, hold a secretary post. Um, she has put, you know, some funding and commitment to looking at why exactly are these silos of communication? Like what is needed to, you know, what resources and things are needed to change the way that we approach these, these crimes? Well, the interplay of those storylines, I mean, you wrote in your author's note to Warrior Girl Unearthed, it's a story about indigenous bodies, how they were mistreated throughout history and how they continue to be disregarded today. And so it wasn't just about getting back these um, ancestral uh, bones and, and funerary items. It was also about um, safeguarding the, the very human women who are um, going to be ancestors later. Uh, but that interplay, that that Perry was simultaneously looking to the past, looking to the present, looking to the future, and thinking about um, her people. And again, summer internship, not what she signed up for, but I love the way her eyes open. And just like you said, with the 
with the fire that only a teenager can really bring to a situation like that. Um, really, uh, just beautiful work, beautiful work here. You also opened my eyes to like other colonial messages sort of swirling around that I think it's really easy to ignore unless you're looking for them. I, I was a kid in the 80s. I remember Raiders of the Lost Ark had some really fun chase scenes and the big the big boulder. Um, but Indiana Jones is stealing relics, tribal artifacts from other people's ancestors. And I think, honestly, until I read your book, I uh, couldn't see that. Right. So I'm real grateful for your work. Yes. When Indiana Jones is like, these belong in a museum. It's like, no, they don't. They, you know, belong where they were placed by the people who placed them originally. And it doesn't mean that nothing would ever be in a museum because um, Cooper Turtle, who's a Perry Firekeeper Birch's supervisor, he... He's the head of a museum that that if a tribe decides that they want to display to these items, then it's not that 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 uh, indigenous people can never be studied, but that that the the families and the tribes should be in charge of making that decision and not the federal government and not some museum that happened to have in their basement looted items that they haven't even bothered to learn the providence of. Right. Hey, I've heard you speak elsewhere about your own background, um, and I believe you mentioned being biracial. Is that correct? Yeah. So my dad is Ojibwe, and my mom is uh, uh, not Native. She's white, like white, white, um, <laughs> English and uh, Norwegian. Uh, and so, um, yeah, I grew up hearing a lifetime of, you know, oh, you don't look native or, oh, but you're not like those natives on the res. Um, and, and it really messed with my sense of self. And it wasn't until I was much older that I, you know, claimed my identity. Like, no, this is what an Ojibwe woman looks like. This is what an Ojibwe woman does. Um, you know, I'm Ojibwe. I'm a woman. Therefore, everything that I do is you know, within the realm of something indigenous women do. Uh, and so I think that the earlier on a person is when they make sense of who they are and claim their identity, it just, it strengthens them going forward. And it's kind of like uh, airplane travel or travel to other um places in the world, I feel like the younger a person is when they have their first experience of seeing the world in such a different way, it changes how they view the world and their place in it. And I feel the same way about identity, that self-concept, that the earlier a person is when it makes sense to them who they are and they embrace everything of themselves, it changes their life going forward. That's why books for children and teens uh, need to reflect the realities that those children and teens experience. Yeah, that's hugely important. Um, I'm thinking about uh, Firekeeper's Daughter that that debuted as a, you know, a number one New York Times bestseller and sort of lit up the both the YA and the adult charts. I think folks who hear your publishing story might be happy for you, but I'll feel a little like downtrodden because you queried for something like two weeks and then ended up in like a 
12, 12 house auction or something like that. I think it'd be really yeah. easy to point to you and be like, look at her overnight success. But for anyone out there now, you know, finding their way through a story, what inspiration can you share about your writing journey? There was always that spark of an idea. And yeah, I I didn't start writing it for like 25 years um, after I having the idea. But I was still creating. The ideas were percolating. And all of the experiences I was living, the different tribal communities I lived in, the different jobs I had, the people I interacted with, it all informed the story kind of gelling. And so, you know, I'm the poster child for tenacity. And gosh, success is, it tastes even better when you're in your 40s and 50s. I needed to be the woman that I am to write the story the way it needed to be told. I think had I written it at 18, it would have been a very cheesy romance. It's Indian time. Things happen when they're supposed to. I think I saw that uh, Francisco Stork, who we know, who's been on the show, um, was one of your mentors along the way. And he had, uh, I think, a similar trajectory where he worked, you know, a full career and then came to writing a little bit later and would probably be the first to say that, you know, Marcelo in the real world and, and his other books are absolutely informed by his decades of experience that they would have been different books if he'd written them younger. Francisco Stork is one of the greatest people on this planet. He changed my life. He just being picked to be mentored by him and he read like, you know, a man, you know, manuscript of Firekeeper's Daughter and gave me critique on it and and said, there's something here. I really believe in you and the story and that he, um, you know, made an introduction to his agent who ended up becoming my agent. Um, he just, and Marcelo in the real world is just one of those perfect books that the author's voice, this interesting, wonderful character. It's like the perfect storm of literature. And Marcelo in the real world is just such a beautiful beautiful story. It absolutely is. Shout out to you, Francisco Stork. You know we're fans. Yes. Uh, well, we all we always close with a quick lightning round. Just a few short answers if you want. These few are multiple choice, actually. You just pick one, okay? Okay. All right. Uh, coffee or tea? Coffee. Dogs or cats? Cats. Oh, no. Really not dogs? Because there's all these dogs in the book. I know. Of course, they are sort of smelly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, I travel so much, I can't have a dog. I just... Uh, but cats... Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm a cat person. I gotcha. Uh, mountains or beach? Beach. Fishing or hockey? Hockey. Cheeseburger with bacon, ketchup, and mustard or a Dairy Queen Buster Bar? I'm allergic to peanuts, so I can't have Buster Bars anymore. A Dilly Bar really hits the spot, though. A Dairy Queen Dilly Bar. I, I'm a simple gal. Me too. Interstellar or The Martian? Interstellar. Interstellar. I love both, but Interstellar, I have a niece who is like my bonus daughter and I, we, she watched it for the first time with me. And now every time we get together, we watch it and 
like we get choked up at the same parts over and over. It's like our movie. And I use the soundtrack uh, when I'm editing my manuscripts. I um, play that on a loop because it's like an hour and 15 minutes of this thread of music that just... It does something to my brain, kind of like the Pomodoro method where I get in the zone, I go gangbusters for an hour and 15 minutes, and then I take a break. I'm going to have to check out that soundtrack. The movie, I know there were folks who didn't like that movie, but it really shook me to the core and has stayed with me. But I'll have to check out that soundtrack. Yes. Okay, a few more here. The the Paquette Sisters Fry Bread or Granny June's Cast Iron Baked Beans and Salt Pork? Oh, God. It's the, the baked beans and salt pork. I My um, cousin Elaine's uh, mom made it one time for a funeral. And I'm sorry. I was so glad that I was at that funeral. <laughs> like, of course, paying my respects. But that it was like thick as tar. And it was so good. Yeah. Uh, your Your book should have come with it. Sort of a, a menu, a tasting menu. <laughs> yeah. Okay. These are supposed to be simple questions, Sorry, and I'm I'm, no, I'm, ex- I'm doing the same. Expounding. You're good. Okay. Um, which elder advice would you be more likely to listen to? Quote, you need to walk before you can run, or quote, things end how they begin. I would say things end how they begin. Yeah. I I loved Granny June. I'd I'd read books all about her. Uh, I mean, I read these ones as well, but she's tremendous. Mm, you might get your wish. Oh, boy. <laughs> yeah, she's amazing. Um, Early bird or night owl? Nowadays, a morning bird. Yeah. Yeah. Are you a risk taker or the person who always knows where the Band-Aids are? I'm the risk taker. I'm impulsive. You have to be. To write Donis from The Firekeeper's Daughter and... Perry from this one. I mean, you've got to have some boldness in you somewhere to do what those girls get themselves into. Woo! (laughs) All right. This is a fill in the blank. If I wasn't working as a writer and had a little magic, instead, I would be a... Had a little magic. Hmm. Well, I wish I had the superpower of being an omniglot, which is uh, being able to fluently speak and know every language, that would be my superpower. I like that. Uh, that would come in handy because I, I follow you on, on some social media and I've seen pictures of you traveling about. So to be able to speak the language in those various ports of call would be great. What is something quirky that folks don't know about you? It could be a like, a love, a pet peeve. This is like a silly pet peeve, but Um, When authors just scribble their signature and you don't know like who it really is, um, I pride myself on having beautiful penmanship and a book signed by me, you know it's from me. It must take you forever to sign them. Your name is long. Angeline has all those letters. I've perfected it and... um, I had to sign, gosh, I'm trying to think of how many tippins I've had to do, uh, which is where you get the, you know, paid stacks of pages that you put your signature on. And then those are going to be printed into when the book gets printed and bound. Um, and I pride myself that my fir- my signature on the first page and the last page, whether it's 40 pages or 4,000 pages, it's going to look similar. It's going, it's me. 
Oh my gosh. Do you use a Sharpie marker to make it flow easier? Yeah, I do. That's good. A few more questions here. What do you love about where you live? Uh, I live on Lake Michigan. Um, I grew up in this little town and um, I hated it. But (laughs) when the pandemic, um, I, I was like, why am I living and working in, why am I living and writing in Washington, D.C.? I could write from anywhere. I had my book deal by then. And um, my parents live a block away from me. I moved I moved back home kind of for my parents, but I I think I've been the beneficiary of much more. And I so waking up every day and seeing Lake Michigan, those, like, even when it's horrible weather, the lake is fascinating to watch, no matter what. Yeah, I'm here in Cleveland, so we've got the Lake Erie. So I'm with you on the, on the 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 magic of a lake. Mm-hmm. So, what are some of your favorite books? Oh, Yellow Face by by R. F. Kwong. I have listened to that audiobook more times than I I'm embarrassed to say. That was so good. Yeah, The Shadow Sister by Lily Mead. She that's her debut novel. It's with Source Books. Promise Boys by uh, Nick Brooks. That one actually is even better as an audio because it's a full, it's a full cast um, recording, and there's like thirty different characters that say stuff, and so it just it's fantastic. Um, anything by Courtney Summers and Melissa Albert, of course Louise Erdrich, <laughs> who I got to meet, and that was a <gasps> highlight of my life. So good. There's just really incredible books that are coming out. Um, I love Alatsui by Darcy Little Badger. Um, anything by Stephen Graham Jones. I He is a fine-looking um, indigenous man. And I met him. This sounds so bizarre. We were both at the American Authors Festival in Paris and we did a panel together and it was my first time meeting him and I had read his book The Only Good Indians and I get up to him and he's you know I've mentioned he's an attractive person and tall and very you know has a very nice presence to him and I was like I really like your books and I just felt like the most idiotic fangirl in the world. Um, So basically, you do good words. (laughs) Sometimes I can't remember any words. I get overwhelmed when I talk to people, and then all the words fall out of my head, and I say things like that. Remember the time you wrote that book? That was awesome. Yeah, so I understand. (laughs) I know, or the next day, I'll think of the perfect thing, like, oh, my God, I would have dazzled Stephen Graham Jones if I would have said this. Um, So that's why writing Perry was so fun, because she thinks, like, she just comes up with these zingers just right off the cuff, and I love it. Yeah, she'd be a good good friend to have on your side. Um, Okay, last one. If we were to take a picture of you really happy and doing something you love, what would we see? I'd be sitting on my love seat, uh, cuddling a cat, talking on the phone with my mom, who's only a block away, and looking at the lake. And I'd probably be drinking a glass of wine and watching The Office or Parks and Rec for the million billionth (laughs) time. Um, Yeah. (laughs) 
that that would that would be a very happy moment. That's great. Sometimes I just break into song <laughs> and sing like I fell into the pit, you fell into the pit, we all fell into the pit. Uh, <laughs> the song from Parks and Rec. So I I hear you there. Um, in your most recent novel, Warrior Girl Unearthed, Perry Firekeeper Birch says, "quote I am my ancestors' greatest wish." And Angeline Bully, I can see your elders saying the same thing about you. I'm grateful to be alive at a time when you are writing too. Migwitch. Oh, Migwitch for that. Yes. Thank you so much. Folks, our guest today has been Angeline Bully, author of several books, including Firekeeper's Daughter and most recently Warrior Girl Unearthed. You can find them at your local library or an indie store near you. To everyone listening, we're wishing you love and light wherever the day takes you. Be good to yourself. Be good to one another, and we'll see you again soon on this wild and precious journey. Wild Precious Life is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Special thanks to executive producers Gerardo Orlando and Michael D'Aloya, and audio engineer Ian Douglas. Be sure to subscribe and follow us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there! I'm Hannah. And I'm Audrey. We are a sister filmmaking duo and co-hosts of Sleepover Cinema, our show where we analyze the films that created the collective unconscious of the girls, gays, and theys of the late 90s and early 2000s. Princess Diaries, The Cheetah Girls, Aquamarine, Cinderella, the one starring Brandy. We haven't stopped thinking about these movies since we first saw them, and we want you to rewatch them and review them with us. Are these movies as bad as critics would have us believe? Do we even care if they are? We are always unpacking that very question on Sleepover Cinema. Check out Sleepover Cinema wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcasts.com. See you soon.